We need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 119 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. With me, the Velvet Glove, Scott. How are you going? Really good, thanks, Trevor. How's yourself? I'm going well. Dear listener, we've, we've got a bit, of a, a bit of a hiccup, though, because I sent a list of items to Scott, and <laughs> <laughs> prior to recording, I said to Scott, okay, so we're just going to run through according to the list I sent you, and Scott said, what list? <laughs> <laughs> and I've ended up in his, in his junk folder. Junk mail. So, yeah, you've got to always... Rev- You've got to run your eye over your junk mail every now yeah. and again, people, to make sure that you aren't just scamming out everyone. Yeah. So, so um, I was talking to Deep Throat, and one of my emails ended up in his junk thing as well. So something's happened where the internet thinks I'm a junk spammer for some reason. Yeah. But um, anyway, mm-hmm. um, so, Scott, uh, you're going to do your best to chip in on the first half dozen here that you're not aware <laughs> of. And as we get through it, you'll get to the ones that you were aware of. So <laughs> bear with us, dear listener. Well, these are topics that uh, Scott, as an avid secularist and political animal, is just... I have been keeping an eye on, yes. He's so just across I may not, these. I'm, I may not have read the exact article that you've sent, but I'm yeah. sure I can tip something anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. It's probably an advantage, actually. So, <laughs> <laughs> so dear listener, sit back. Uh, by with, the way. Yeah. Go on. Uh, I think I should start off with this mea culpa. Um mm-hmm. I have thought long and hard about your uh, challenging me over the uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for categorization of people based on their religious belief. Yes, and I have come to the conclusion that there is some merit in some of what you have said, uh, but I'm not exactly certain of the categorization of. Muslims and that sort of stuff into the uh, categories that you've set up, mm-hmm. but the uh, the articles that we did read last week that categorised Christians based on their number of times that they attended church services and that sort of stuff, I thought that was valuable and useful. Right. Oh, that's good. So I can I can see that there is some merit to some of what you have said, but um, well, it's good to know that <laughs> we can not- change each other's mind if only a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still yet to do the same with the 12th man, but um, I haven't had as long to work on him. But uh... well, That's true, yes. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Well, you probably don't like the harsh language that I used when, critis- when, when I was categorising Muslims because I had, you know, social Muslim. No, I had to buy the book Muslim and a, and a killing is okay Muslim. Might have been just a little bit, <laughs> a little bit tough. They were probably just a little bit tough with their descriptions, but the the main thing was that you couldn't categorise them. You, you had to, um, mm. you couldn't just say, well, you know, you're a Muslim that attends Friday prayers once a month. You're a Muslim that attends the holy days and that sort of stuff, and that's about it. Mm. You couldn't separate them out into something that you could categorise people based on the numbers of attendance and all that sort of stuff. You had to make a value judgment on them. Yes. And that, I think, is uh, where it's flawed. <laughs> okay. We'll revisit that. So, because really, I mean, I can set up categories and say that if people believe these things or 
practice their faith in this way, they fall into this category or into that category. That is true, yes, and you could do that. Yes. I'm quite happy for people to self-assess. Like, I'm not going to say you're this, but I just, you know, you could give people a questionnaire and say, which one are you? Let them decide themselves. Mm. So, yeah. Anyway, all right, very yeah. good, Scott. Well, <laughs> moving on, dear listener. Um, we're going to try and limit our marriage equality discussion on this one because we've really been on about that for a while and it'll come up perhaps um, just in a little side note to something else later on. But we're going to avoid marriage equality for at least this episode. If you're sick of it, uh, relax. It's not going to uh, play much of a part. But well, we're going to give. Quarters of the population have already responded to the ABS survey, mm. so that means that the uh, yes votes should be up. So mm. anyway, we shall see where it lands in the end. Mm. Anyway, mm. So, but we are going to give uh, uh, assisted dying, voluntary euthanasia, a bit of a bash in the first section. And uh, dear listener, and it's very uh, well deserved bash too. Mm. Uh, mm. Queensland, uh, we previously mentioned. I think we mentioned on the podcast, Scott, about the Queensland Labor managing to get it yeah. carried through the conference and uh, they and thought just it would... ignore it. Well, <laughs> you know, the left got it through and it was... They kind of thought it wouldn't get through because it, there wouldn't be time on the agenda and there was and it, so it came up and got passed. And anyway, article here, um, uh, headline... Queensland won't revisit euthanasia debate. This is Jackie Trad. The Queensland government says it has no intention of reviewing the state's euthanasia laws. Queensland Deputy Jackie Trad praised the Victorian government for the historic reform, but said there were no plans to raise the issue in Queensland. Scott, how can it's, you, on the mm, one hand, praise a government... Praise government for doing something that you don't have the courage to do yourself, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it just boggles the mind. Like, it does. You're in the yeah. same business. You you are in the same business, and there's nothing wrong in this business with copying good ideas. Like mm-hmm. you're supposed to copy good ideas from other mm. jurisdictions. Yeah, mm. it's it was absolutely crazy. I mean, I'm pretty sure I sent you that article, mm. but um, that was it was maddening when I was reading it. I thought to myself, what what planet is this woman on? You know. And the thing that really gives me the irrits is they've got a unicameral house up here. They don't have to worry about a, 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 a second house, a legislative council. They've only got the legislative assembly that they have to get through. The coalition would grant their members a conscience vote. You'd have a conscience vote, both sides. It would probably pass. Good point. We only have the one house. You're right. Exactly. Mm. You know. Mm. So, yeah, it would probably be narrow. It would probably be a very narrow victory up here in Queensland because we've got a whole lot of god botherers in our legislative assembly. Mm. But it would still be a victory. Yeah. Mm. So, just further on the article, it says the state labor conference in July passed a motion introduced by the party's powerful left faction to support the introduction of voluntary euthanasia laws. Ms. Trad, a member of the left, said on Friday that while the party had adopted the position the Queensland government had no position on euthanasia laws. So basically, while the political party might have agreed to something, well, the party, uh, the, the, the parliamentary wing of the party hasn't um, mm. come to any decision and apparently too busy with other things to... This is the it. thing. It's, it's really ridiculous that you've got a government that is so paralysed with fear. Mm. 
you know, they're not prepared to do anything. It's I don't know if it's fear know, or I if it's, it's uh, I don't know if it's fear or if it's just lack of motivation. I don't know. Mm. Anyway. But you know, they they just seem to be taking the easy road. You know, they're just throwing rocks at the opposition. You know, but that's about it. But they don't seem to be wanting to do anything. Mm. I mean, you, you've made that point before. You said that Tom Burns and the you know the Labor stalwarts mm. they must be spinning in their graves. Mm. You know. Yep. Mm. Yep. Um, last week, Scott, we mentioned Paul Keating. Yeah. And, uh, Rather favourably too, didn't well, we? Well, yeah. yeah. We're sort of saying, <laughs> well, yeah. I was saying that 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 the the vote yes campaign was uh, no. Actually, on, on the voluntary euthanasia, I was saying that people were too um, too soft and weren't going hard enough at the opposition. And, you know, I was sort of saying, well, you know, could you imagine Paul Keating this circumstance? He'd really go for them. And mm. literally 24 hours later, he issues a, <laughs> a statement published everywhere basically saying that he's against voluntary euthanasia laws. Yeah. Now, the, the article that I remember sending to you, it said that uh, he's well, a lifelong Catholic. Now, I don't know if that just means that he's a, a notional Catholic or whether he's actually a believer. But... Um, it was very interesting that they brought that up, mm. that he was a Catholic. And, um, yeah, but it was – I haven't got the article in front of me, but I found it ridiculous, the sort of stuff that he was saying. He was he, he said that none of the goodwill or the good intentions behind the legislation would prevent it from being abused, you know. Yes. He has completely ignored the research that's been done in um, that state in America, which completely ignored uh, – Oregon. Oregon, yeah, Oregon, because I believe that's been the it's been the jurisdiction in the United States that's had the voluntary assisted dying mm-hmm. legislation longest, and you know they've come out time and time again and said that there's been no abuse. That's, you know, that's right. The, well, and you know they're also finding that from Belgium there's no abuse, from Switzerland there's no abuse, in the Netherlands there's no abuse. You know, yes. so the allegation is from from Paul Geating. Well, actually, I'll read some of the quotes here, Scott, and we can can deal with them. But he said, uh, he starts off here. No matter what justifications are offered for the bill, it constitutes an unacceptable departure in our approach to human existence and the irrevocable sanctity that should govern our understanding of what it means to be human. In other words, uh, he's saying, he's, he's relying on tradition. And he's yeah. saying that we can't evolve in our understanding of what it means to be human and we can't change something because it's of irrevocable sanctity, which t- smacks a lot like sacredness to me, Scott. So yeah. th- that's his first argument is an, it's an unacceptable departure in our approach, which is basically we can't have change mm. without a reason. Then he goes on and he says, what matters is the core intention of the law. What matters is that under Victorian law, there will be people whose lives we honour and those we believe are better off dead. And the answer is, Paul Keating, there are people who are better off dead than being Mm. racked with pain for several weeks or months trying to die. That that is the case, like this it or is, not. This is the case. Yeah, and this is this is something that Andrew Denton said. He said, um, I can't remember the exact 
quote, but he said along the lines of, why have you got people that you know are going to die, they're in, they're in incredible pain, and you won't let them die, you know? It's absolutely outrageous that people stick to this nonsense. Yeah. And Keating was – it really surprised me, the whole article. It shocked me, actually, that it was coming from him. It is quite surprising. Uh, going on – this is the part that you were kind of referring to, Scott. An mm. alarming aspect of the debate is the claim that safeguards can be provided at every step to protect the vulnerable. No law and no process can achieve that objective. That, this is the point. If there are doctors prepared to bend the rules now, there will be doctors prepared to bend the rules under the new system. Beyond that, once termination of life is authorised, the threshold is crossed. From that point, it is much easier to liberalise the conditions governing the law. And liberalised they will be. Few people familiar with our politics would doubt that pressure would mount for further liberalisation based on the demand that people are being discriminated against if denied. The experience of overseas jurisdictions suggests the pressures for further liberalisation are irresistible. Now, that last bit is totally incorrect. Mm, It really is. Some of the, you know, our proposed legislation that they're talking about in Victoria is for people who are terminally ill with 12 months to live. And in some overseas jurisdictions, it's just, uh, you know, people who aren't in that predicament but who want to die anyway. Mm. Now, those jurisdictions always had the law like that. They didn't start with the Victorian model and expand out to a wider jurisdiction. They just started there. So the other jurisdictions did not expand from what they originally started out at. They remained static. It is completely false to say that the experience of overseas jurisdictions suggests the pressures for further liberalisation are irresistible. In fact, it's the opposite. That has not happened. And he also says in the beginning there, um, if doctors are prepared to bend the rules now, there will be doctors prepared to bend the rules under the new system. Well, the, the point is, people are being murdered by their relatives to access their estate under the current system. Mm. And yes, it will happen under the future system. But the studies show that by having assisted dying legislation, it doesn't increase. It's the same as under the old system. It's not something that increases the murder rates of elderly people by conniving relatives. And that's what the statistics show. So... He hasn't done any research at all on this. He's just mouthed no, off. He's yeah. just he's basically grabbed a whole lot of sound bites that sound good, and he's, you know, he's 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 a very articulate man for sure, and he has mm. strung them he's strung the words together in such a way that they sound convincing, but once you sit there and unpack it and unpick it, you realise that he's wrong. You know, it's a series of falsehoods. He goes exactly. on. Um, The submission highlights the problems with this bill. It is a disproportionate response to the real problems of patient pain and suffering. More people in our community will be put at risk by this bill than will be granted relief as its beneficiaries. This is the salient point. And I would just simply argue that the status quo is disproportionate Mm. to the real problems um, 
of patient pain and suffering. We've got lots of people suffering a lot of pain and suffering because mm-hmm. of the status quo. Exactly. It's really, um, <laughs> it's really ridiculous that he actually said what he said because none of it makes sense. Mm. You know, finishes off it's, here. Opposition mm. to this bill is not about religion. It is about the civilized ethic that should be at the heart of our secular society. The concerns I express are shared by people of any religion or no religion. In public life, it's the principles that matter. It is a mistake for legislators to act on the deeply held emotional concerns of many when that involves crossing a threshold that will affect the entire society in perpetuity. Scott, um, the concerns I express are shared by people of any religion or no religion, but we know the statistics show that basically... It's concerned by religious people, yeah. (laughs) Beyond a shadow of a doubt, if you are against assisted dying legislation, extremely high probability of being devoutly religious. Mm. Um, He accuses people of acting on deeply held emotional concerns, and I accuse him of uh, emotional argument here. And finally, Scott, after reading all that, I thought, how religious was Paul Keating? And dear listener, you know, this podcast wasn't around during the Keating era and we hadn't started the Iron Fist Velvet Glove Secular Index for us to refer back to. But had we, we'd have come up with, uh, he definitely is a strong believer in God and he's described as more than just a tribal Catholic and uh, while being progressive on race issues with Aboriginals, he was socially conservative. It would be a summary of Paul Keating, according to the bits and pieces I found in the meantime, Scott. So, mm. you know, he was always big on the economy and he was big on Aboriginal affairs, but, you know, come to think of it, never really remember him speaking much about social issues because often they're not really a Commonwealth issue. Often they're state issues. But anyway. Yeah, exactly. There we go. Now. Yeah, well, uh, I have no, wasn't it? Paul Keating, of course, is famous for uh, calling the Senate unrepresentative swill (laughs) for obstructing his legislative agenda. And the last, oh, we've previously in the last couple of weeks read from a blog called Dying for Choice. This guy, Neil Francis, he's got some really good research on this blog. Anyway... He's suggesting that our parliamentarians, in their approach to assisted dying, are also perhaps unrepresentative swill because, as we know from the statistics, roughly 77% of Australians want this sort of reform. 13% are undecided, with 10% opposed. And he refers to a... 2008 university study of federal MPs, voting opportunities, and uh, found that this was in relation to the Northern Territory thing with Kevin Andrews. 100% of Greens are in favour of voluntary euthanasia, 55% of Labor, paltry 17% of Coalition. And also, he refers to an analysis of state governments around Australia that have had a crack at passing voluntary uh, assisted dying bills since 2000. 
Um, and if you exclude South Australia, the coalition support rate has been just 9%. Is that right? So we know in the community the support rate is 77%. Yet The coalition can barely gather 9% of their, of their votes. Coalition state government members, excluding South Australia, which has had a number of different attempts, uh, it's just 9%. They're just unrepresentative swill. Scott. Yeah, they are. Hmm. You know, um, that, that really um, paints a whole new picture of them, doesn't it? Mm. Why is that the case? He thinks that there's a truism that politicians feel that voting in favour of this legislation will lose them more votes than it will win them votes. But that is clearly wrong. Um, and while often they refer to a conscience vote, what they do is... Um, once a conscience vote is defeated, then instead of allowing the bill to go back to committee to be um, fixed up for its alleged faults, it, uh, they don't allow conscience votes and the bills just uh, drop off the scene altogether. So that's one of their tactics. Uh, he says a university study comparing federal MP conscience votes in the UK, New Zealand and Australia found Australia to be different. Um, and the reason was that he reckons the centre-left in Australia has a higher proportion of Catholic members than the UK and New Zealand, hence why we are less progressive. Hmm. He might be able to add a lot Good. to our index, this guy. Um, and, you know, the opposition leader in Victoria, Mr Matthew Guy, has stated he's going to oppose voluntary assisted dying um, and he's going to do that where in his electorate of 43,000 people, 34,000 of them actually want assisted dying legislation <laughs> It clearly is not a vote changer is it? Because you know well, if you not a, 30... not, These politicians are bound by their religious ideologies that's the mm. thing isn't it? Like, the public is clearly in fa It's hard to fa imagine a, a, a piece of legislation where the public is more in favour of it, yet these politicians are just ignoring it. Exactly. Yeah. They're just bound by their religious ideology, as we've shown mm. from the statistics. It's, it's the only... You know, there will be a handful who perhaps are not religiously motivated, but, the, you know, the vast majority are. Mm. Scott, that's why we need a secular answer to dominionism. You know, this is, this is the thing. These dominionists have got people in power, in parliament, in our judiciary, in schools. They're just infecting our leaders so that even when our general population wants something, the people in charge just say, no, not having it. Too exactly, bad. yeah. Mm. Right, Scott, um... Article here from Pew Research Centre. A growing share of Americans say it is not necessary to believe in God to be moral. That's pleasing. So when they last did this survey about uh, six years ago, um, basically, uh, uh, let me just see here. It's... Um, 
Most U.S. adults now say it is not necessary to believe in God to be moral and have good values. So that's 56%. It used to be 49%. So, um, so yeah, so the population is moving to believe you don't need to believe in God to have good morals. And they've sort of broken up the respondents. Those who are still thinking you have to be religious to be moral, the group most likely to think that would be the black Protestants. And no prizes for guessing that the people least thinking that are the religiously unaffiliated. So, <laughs> But all groups are moving towards recognising that you don't need to be religious to be uh, moral. Scott, have you ever seen the, t- the uh, series? It's on Foxtel, uh, True Detective. No, never seen it. Uh, is it good, inter- is it? Oh, it's really good. It's uh, dark and it's grim and um, it's got this great character in it um, played by Matthew McConaughey, um, Cole, who's this really cynical guy who's quite anti-religious and his partner, mm. Woody, uh, Woody Harrelson, plays Marty, who's quite religious. Anyway, uh, on this particular topic, there's a little clip. Hang on. Um, uh, I mean, can you imagine if people didn't believe what things they'd get up to? Exact same thing they do now, just out in the open. Bull shit. It'd be a fucking freak show of murder and debauchery, and you know it. If the only thing keeping a person decent is the expectation of divine reward, then, brother, that person is a piece of shit. And I'd like to get as many of them out in the open as possible. I guess your judgment is infallible, piece of shit-wise. You gotta get together, tell yourself stories that violate every law of the universe, just to get through the goddamn day. What's that say about your reality, Marty? It's a really good show. About seven episodes in it, an hour long each. And if you like dark and grim, um... It's a good, True detective, yeah. Yeah, and it's got, you know, smatterings of, of anti-religious stuff from, from Carl as well, which is really good. So they have a good dig at religion along the way. Excellent. Excellent. Sounds good. Mm. So that was a poll in relation to America. Uh, an Ipsos Global poll looked at the whole world, which included Australia, on um, whether religion does more harm than good. And yeah, and you got two-thirds saying that it did more harm than good. Yes, Two in three Australians think religion does more harm than good. We're clearly having an effect, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, though, of those two-thirds, though, a number of them still uh, categorise themselves as a religion, as belonging to a religion of some description in the last census. Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So um, it wasn't clear, actually, whether... Um, you know, whether, whether religion does more harm than good in the world, meant they, they might have been thinking, well, it's doing a lot of harm in places outside of Australia um, rather than our good Christian faith here in Australia. So, um, yeah. But anyway, um, you, can, you can quote the statistic that two out of three Australians think that religion is doing more harm than good. Also, it mm. says, which was actually, uh, which was the highest except for Belgium, Oh, really? Uh, yeah. But then on the other sc- end of the scale, I said um, um, Australia had an above-average share of people who complete who were completely comfortable being around people 
with different religious beliefs to their own, which was 84%. So we were also among the more tolerant nations globally. So we distrusted religion the most and we were in the highest category of actually being quite tolerant of people, other religions. We're not as bad as the left would make okay. us out to be at times, Scott. Exactly, yeah. Mm. Uh, quite another lengthy piece from Pew Research Centre on the future of truth and misinformation online. Scott, this is a worrying thing when you read stuff. Is it true or not? What? It's hard to know where the truth lies on so many things now. You really need to see who wrote this. What was the mm. source? Can I believe and this or not? That is why I tend to read the ABC, The Conversation, and the Brisbane Times, and that's about it. You know, mm. the, And that's about all I do read yep. online. That's where I get my news from is those three sources. And... I think that um, well, you Brisbane can't, Times you can't is, trust is the Murdoch fact. press. Yeah. Well, no, and the Murdoch press is not that you can't trust it, but they, you know, they they paint they paint it up in such a way that it's ridiculous. That the the, uh, the partisan buyers by by partisan. What's the word I'm looking for? Anyway, the partisanship that comes through partisan the Murdoch bias. press is ridiculous. Yeah. Mm. Bias. That's exactly it. Yeah. Mm. It's um. It is ridiculous what goes on there. But the Fairfax papers are a little more moderate, yep. you know. But, you know, I mean, stuff sure you They are left-leaning, but, yeah. And then stuff that comes through Facebook, you know, you just don't know what to believe. Well, no, times. and yeah. I don't trust any of it that comes through Facebook, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is so many people do. So Yeah, I mean, exactly. My, my mother uh, was listening, you know, watching Fox News all the time and – this is during the Obama years, and she said, oh, they hate that. This is prior to Obama's second election, second term. She said, oh, he's yeah. not going to get in. He won't be voted in. They hate him over there. They can't stand that Obama. I said, actually, he's doing really well in the polls. It's just that you're listening to Fox News all the time. You've been completely <laughs> indoctrinated into thinking she had no idea. Like, she had no yeah. idea. She thought every American hated Obama because all mm. she'd been watching was Fox News. Mm. That's the danger we're facing in the society. So, uh, in fact, the BB... what's really dangerous is in America. Those, um, sorry to cut you off, but mm. the uh, the networks actually have a do. I don't know how they do it, but apparently they do have a an influence over the outcome of the presidential elections. Like when the counting's called and that sort of stuff, the networks actually call it and that sort of thing. So, uh, you mean yeah. in the calling of it? The calling of the polls. Yeah, yeah. Influences the. Voting. Well, no, not the voting of it, yeah. but the um, once that once the once the voting is closed and that sort of stuff, then you end up having the the networks calling and that sort of thing, and that's usually the way end the way they end up going. Okay, yeah. now that's probably based on exit polling, though. Mm, I would yeah. imagine so. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, the BBC uh, interviewed a panel of fifty experts in early two thousand and seventeen about the grand challenges we face in the twenty first century. And many of them named the breakdown of trusted information sources as one of the major challenges. So they then got together another large um, group of technologists, scholars, practitioners, strategic thinkers and others, asking them to react 
to the framing of this question. The question being, in the next 10 years, will trusted methods emerge to block false narratives and allow the most accurate information to prevail in the overall information ecosystem? Or will quality and veracity of information online deteriorate due to the spread of unreliable, sometimes even dangerous, socially destabling ideas? In summary, in the next 10 years, is fake news going to win or not? Um, are things going to improve or not? And the respondents split 51% saying that it will not improve and 49% thought that it would. And they looked at their reasons. And for the people who said, uh, unfortunately, fake news is just going to get worse, they cite mm. two major reasons, Scott. Um, one is that the fake news um, preys on some of our deepest human instincts. Um, manipulative actors will use new digital tools to take advantage of humans' inbred preference for comfort and convenience and their craving for the answers they find in reinforcing echo chambers. And secondly, that we're just not wired to contend with the pace of technological change and we'll simply give up trying to be informed. So... That was the sort of main reasons for the people who thought it's not going to improve and the ones who thought it would improve were basically relying on technology to fix the problem, that somehow there's going to be filters and technological improvements to filter out fake news. It didn't yeah, sound compelling to me. Happen. Yeah. It, didn't sound all that, it doesn't sound all that compelling because... The whole point of fake news is to escape someone's BS detector. Correct. You know. Yep. And an algorithm so, in an in a computer is 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 not going to struggle to find that sort of difference. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, actually, one of the main things going back to the people who thought things are going to get worse. Um, yep. Uh, the ideas they proposed are humans. Uh, uh, selfish, tribal, gullible, convenience seekers who put the most trust in that which seems familiar. That's true. Well, that uh, is very true, yeah. yeah. Um, also, those generally acting for themselves and not the public good have the advantage and they are likely to stay ahead in the information wars. So the rich and the powerful, uh, it's, it's in their interest to generate fake news and control it and control the minds of the population. And uh, so they will continue to do so because it's just a question of power. Mm. Um, I, I suppose the one thing, Scott, for the other argument that's sort of saying we can beat fake news is relying on things like trust ratings. So, you know, if you're travelling and you use something like TripAdvisor, where the public have sort of rated a hotel or a restaurant and given it a four or five stars, and you say, oh, well, that's going to be a decent place to go to. You use TripAdvisor at all? I Any do, yeah. 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 And um, Or Rotten Tomatoes with a movie review. Um, mm. You know, potentially we'll have sort of that sort of truth rating systems or credibility ratings of news sources so that we can feel comfortable about them, that might help to sort of 
secure whether you think something's valid or not. The problem with that is, though, that you're going to have those people that are rusted on Republican or LNP supporters and that sort of stuff will be at their voting saying, yeah, it's, it's great, it's an excellent source of reliable news, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And then the same would be true of the left. The Greens and the Labor Party supporters and that sort of stuff would be saying it's trusted, it's a reliable source of news, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And if they get enough of people voting that way, then you could end up with biased stuff being sold as I agree. independent journalism. Yeah, yeah I agree. Um, I mean, it, it's, it pains me to say this, and if Cameron's listening to the uh, podcast, he'll throw rocks at me for saying this, but uh, I think we're going to have to rely on our state-based um, sources of journalism. I think we're going to have to rely on a well-funded ABC and SBS to keep us informed. Right. Who's Cameron? Because... Oh, Cameron's a good mate of mine that oh. listens to the podcast. Okay. Yeah. 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 Good Cameron. How are you? He doesn't. Well, well he's like right wing Tony. He's not. He doesn't like he the ABC. Tony, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, does, he He really. He loves right wing Tony. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you know that's where Pauline Hanson was lining up the ABC, and it's just the last. Uh, sure, it's ridiculously left wing on some things, but at least it's a. It is a balance to the Murdoch press. It is left-wing on some areas, but it also has a um, – and this is something that I don't know that they did it deliberately or not, but they do actually have reporters from left and right. Mm. You know, you do have reporters that are from the right wing. You do have reporters that are from the left wing and that sort of stuff, but they end up basically around the centre, you know. At least if they state a fact that such and such said such and such, you can trust that that was actually said. So, exactly. Or an yeah. event actually happened. So as a, yeah. as a statement of fact, you can trust when it comes out of their mouth that that actually happened. As mm. to their interpretation, it's going to be a left-wing interpretation. But, um, but you know, if you read an article in the Murdoch press like a Rowan Dean or something claiming some statistic on climate change or whatever, I just wouldn't trust anything the guy says. I just would mm. not trust, um, uh, you know, so-called facts that he might come up with. Yeah, that's where we've reached. Anyway, um, just getting back to this article. So there, all sorts of different people were asked their opinions about this sort of fake news and the ability of people to sort of discern what um, is truth and what isn't truth over the next 10 years. And I'll just read some of the quotes. Um, the internet is the 21st century's threat of a nuclear winter. The public can grasp the destructive power of nuclear weapons in a way they will never understand the utterly corrosive power of the internet to civilise society when there is no reliable <laughs> mechanism for sorting out what people can believe to be true or false. <laughs> well, you know, whoever said that, I think, you know, there's only one thing to say, and that's pretty accurate so far. It was an institute director and university professor. Some of them are named, some of them are anonymous with their positions. Um, this one, an ex uh, for some, an executive consultant based in North America, said... It comes down to motivation. There is no market for the truth. The public isn't motivated to seek out verified, vetted information. They are happy hearing what confirms their views. And people can gain more creating fake information, both monetary and in notoriety, than they can keeping it from occurring. So power and money 
is influ- you know, is motivating people to mislead. Mm. Um, the sorting is a different guy, media consultant. Uh, the sorting of reliable versus fake news requires a trusted referee. It seemed unlikely that government can play a meaningful role as this referee. We are too polarised and we have come to see the television news teams as representing divergent points of view and depending on your politics, the network that does not represent your views is guilty of fake news. It's hard to imagine a fair referee that would be universally trusted. Um, well, you've got yeah. the algorithms as they're talking about. You know? mm. yeah. <laughs> um, things will not improve, says Stephen Downs, researcher with National Research Council. Things will not improve. There is too much incentive to spread disinformation, fake news, malware and the rest. Governments and organisations are major actors in this space. Um, big political players have just learned how to play this game. I don't think they'll put much effort into eliminating it. That's true. Um, Here's one. Overall, at least a part of society will value trusted information and find ways to keep a set of curated quality information resources. It sounds like you, Scott, with your the conversation, blah, blah. This will use a combination of organisational and technological tools, but above all will require a sharpened sense of good judgment and access to diverse sources. Outside of this, chaos will reign. <laughs> a small part of society will know... What to do, and outside of that, chaos will reign. Yeah, that's really frightening, isn't it? Mm, it's it's too easy to create fake facts. It's too labour intensive to check, and too easy to fool checking algorithms. Mm. Um, there's an arms race between those who want to falsify information and those who want to produce accurate information. The former will always have the advantage. Um, I'll find just a couple more here. It goes on for pages and pages, dear listener. Um, Actually, this guy says, we were in this position before when printing presses broke the existing system of information management. A new system emerged, and I believe we have the motivation and capability to do it again. So this is from a person who thought, it's not so bad. Um, right. We're in this position before when printing presses broke the existing system of information management. But the whole point is, Scott, that for 2,000 years, goddamn rich and powerful and mostly religious were in control of, of the written word. And then and along came the printing press, yeah. The printing press came along and liberated us by expanding information from the elite down through to the masses... This is is not an expansion of information to the masses because it's a contamination of the information. So you no longer know whether it's valuable or not. You don't know what mm. you've got. So it's mm. sort of destroying it by contamination. Mm. It's, it's frightening. And there's one other quote in here somewhere which basically says that really algorithms aren't going to do the trick, filters aren't going to do the trick, 
it comes down to people being able to just critically analyse information and work out, can this be real or not? Does it match up with what I know about the world and that person or that thing? And that, that sort of individual's ability to analyse stuff and work it out is what it's going to come down to. Well, see, that's um, where I think the system falls over because you've got this situation that you've got people like your mother, you know, who was yeah. just watching Fox News yep. and she thought that everyone hated everyone hated Obama. But, you know, he won the second term, you yes. know. Yep, yep. Not it's... everyone's got time to investigate and look or the inclination or the knowledge or the capacity. Exactly, yeah. Ah, Scott. Um, hmm. Quebec passed a law banning facial coverings in public in Canada. Quebec did. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, barring, uh, so public servants from wearing the niqab or the burqa and obliging citizens to unveil when riding public transit or receiving government services. Fantastic. Mm. Uh, when asked why, the Premier of Quebec said, we are just saying that for reasons linked to communication, identification and safety, public services should be given and received with an open face. We are in a free and democratic society. You speak to me, I should see your face, and you should see mine. It's as simple as that. <laughs> it's pretty hard to argue with, isn't it? Mm. Scott, did you read To Kill a Mockingbird when you were in primary school, on a high school? Um, I read it, and read it in grade 8 or grade 9, yeah. Do you like it? I can barely remember it, but um, it's one of those books that I've got to go back and read again, actually. But, yeah, I did like it, I think, yeah. It's a great book. It's just yeah. one of the all-time classics, you know. Um, how many million of Bing. things? Are, uh, Being banned by a school district, is it? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Eighth graders in Biloxi, uh, Missouri, will no longer be required to read To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, the vice president of the school board told uh, the Sun-Herald there had been complaints about the book. There is some language in the book that makes people uncomfortable and we can teach the what same language? lesson what, what with language? other books. That what would be uncomfortable? Well, well, it's the language about, you know, the references to um, the treatment of black people. Okay, but yeah. The whole message of the book was is, Atticus Finch yeah. and his yeah. refusal to bow down to white supremacist, for want of a better word. Mm. It goes on here. Um, the book has been banned multiple times, according to the American Library Association, often at the request of black parents and students who are concerned about the book's racial epithets. What is wrong with you people? This is a book that, that applauds a man who goes against the grain to defend a black man against a charge of murder in a mm -hmm. racist society, mm -hmm. it sets the most magnificent example and you want to ban it because of an uncomfortable exactly. reference to a bad... The world's gone mad, Scott. That should be the first book they want actually exactly. read. Exactly, because, you know, you, you've just got to... You've got to take the good with the bad, and the bad with it comes with the language and that sort of stuff, which I don't remember, but I, I do vaguely remember some of the language in it. Probably uses the N-word somewhere, but that's... Yeah, more than likely, yeah. But, but in a manner that is then shown to be not a good thing. 
exactly. Yeah. Mm. The world's going to, Scott. Uh, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's crazy. Yeah. Um, Scott, remember in the early days, we referred to Dyson Hayden, who was yeah, head of the Royal... He was head of the Royal Commission into the uh, trade union governance and corruption. Yes. Do you remember that? I do remember that. And Former High Court judge. Yes, that's right. We referred to him, dear listener, way back in episodes four and nine. <laughs> it's going back a bit, Scott. He's going back a little while, isn't it? And at the time, he, uh, Julia Gillard had been required to um, give evidence at his inquiry. Uh, he got into trouble because he had been seen at some sort of government fundraising event whilst being um, on this Royal Commission. So, you know, on a Royal Commission investigating Labor figures for union corruption, he was also attending government fundraisers. Not, it wasn't a good look. Anyway, mm. uh, Julia Gillard had to appear in front of him and he criticised her performance as a witness. and For being too well rehearsed, wasn't it? He, he, well, he said her intense degree of preparation, That's her, it, yes. her familiarity with the materials, her acuteness and her powerful instinct for self-preservation made it difficult to judge her credibility. So... Difficult to judge her credibility because of her intense degree of preparation and her familiarity with the materials and her acuteness. <laughs> Criticising a witness for being so well prepared was just a really strange thing to say. Anyway, he's a former High Court judge. And uh, article here in the Catholic News, um, his condemned attempts to exclude religion from the public debate. So he's on about the whole freedom of religion thing. Uh, oh, God, he's not he's, one of those, is he? He is. He's come out in praise of Patrick McMahon Glynn, who contributed to the Australian Constitution, notably for ensuring that the words humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God were included in the preamble. And Dyson Hayden says, wasn't that a great contribution to the Constitution? That's what the elites of that time were thinking. And it's a real shame, basically, that the elites of today do not think that. And he says, they do not reflect what uh, <laughs> modern elites think. The public, the public voices of modern elites are not humble. They conceive themselves to have entitlements and rights, not blessings. And they do not feel any gratitude to Almighty God for their entitlements and rights. This is a High Court judge. How do you go arguing secular ideas in the High Court when potentially there's characters like that with that sort of thinking on the court? It's tough, isn't it? That really surprises me that he's got that level of um, religious conviction because... You would think that to get to a position like the High Court, that you would have to demonstrate that you are, that religion is beneath you. Well, not beneath you, but it's it's no longer a a, a part that's influencing your life. 
Well, you just get nominated you know. by the government of the day. That's the point, you know. If you, mm. it's a bit like Trump appointing, um, you know, that's going to be the lasting legacy of Trump is is the number of judges he gets on, you know, not only the Supreme Court but other courts in the US. Yeah, but the yeah. the federal court is where he's actually really going to town with it. Apparently, he's, mm. um, you know, I was listening to a podcast on the weekend that said that um, he is changing the the face of the judiciary and the federal courts yeah know? yeah so you know you get guys like tony abbott and that you know deciding who the next high court judge is going to be well guess what you know, yeah you thinking, end up with a religious nut thinking yeah. like that is going to be an advantage yeah mm. uh scott uh corporate tax um the u.s is looking at dropping the corporate tax rate um by 15%, you know, surprise Donald Trump. And most of that, of course, is going to benefit the wealthiest um, of American um, income earners, not the middle class or the lower class. So there could be discussions in Australia about dropping our tax rate further. What happened with that, Scott? We were talking about well, tax. Did that not get through. Was that it one didn't of the get things? Through. Right. It didn't get through the Senate, and the Senate has blocked it. Um, Thank God for that. The, I think that the small businesses are going to get a tax cut. So if you've got a, if you've got an income up to four or five million dollars or something like that, right, you are going to be dropped down to twenty five percent. But everyone else is staying at thirty. Okay, so the big, big companies didn't. Yeah, they're still at thirty. Yeah, right. Mm. Okay, mm. which. Um, so anyway, and thirty percent. I've I've read this before. I'm sorry to cut you off, you but I read ahead. this before years ago, where they reckon that thirty percent is about where the the corporate tax rate should be. Mm. You know, because they said anything higher than that is too high, but anything lower than that, you know, the the country's ripping themselves off. Well, when you're looking at um, G20 countries, uh, there's three different ways of looking at tax rates. You've got just the the, the figure. Um, the statutory corporate rate, which in our case is 30%. When you line up the G20 countries, we are smack bang in the middle at mm. around number 10. The other way of looking at it is the average corporate tax rate. And if you do that, we are the fourth lowest. And the other way of looking at it is the effective corporate tax rate. So... Uh, let me just find my notes on the effective corporate tax rate. So, see, these discrepancies relate to a range of things, including how quickly firms can write down or depreciate the value of their investments and where they have sourced their finance. And, you know, in America, they have other state taxes and things that get added. So, really, yeah. just looking at a headline figure doesn't necessarily tell the true picture. So perhaps the best one is this effective corporate tax rate. And again, on the G20 countries, we are more or less smack bang in the middle of them when you list them from highest to lowest. So we're very much around average or lower when it comes to taxing corporations. The thing is, Scott, we are unique in that we've got the dividend imputation system. So mm. if we give a tax break to corporations, these small businesses... It just means that the the owners of these businesses are going to pay more personal tax when they take the profits out of the business. When they take the when they take the dividend as a, out of the business, yeah. exactly. So a tax break of five percent 
doesn't help the so-called small business owner because it just means there's left, less dividend imputation, less franking credits, mm-hmm. so then they will pay more tax on their personal income. The only people it helps are foreign owners of businesses because they don't have the benefit of dividend imputation, so when there's a 5% drop in tax, they actually get a 5% benefit. But, mm, exactly. Um, yeah. um, so anyway, Scott, there's a little bit on tax and um, uh, for people who think that we're taxed too high in Australia, hello to you, right-wing Tony. Um, click on this article and, <laughs> and maybe Cameron should be looking at it. Is that right, Scott? <laughs> Well, Cameron wouldn't wouldn't uh, wouldn't agree with you that uh, we're not we're not overtaxed. He would think that we are overtaxed. So yes. Well, there you go. Refer him to that article, and I'll do that uh, and yes. see what he comes back with. Um, Scott, time to thank our patrons. Uh, we've got a new one. Craig uh, sent us a nice lump sum amount. Dear listener, you've got two options if you want to be a patron. Uh, you can donate a regular amount per show. Or if you just don't like the idea of regular sort of commitments on your credit card or whatever, um, but you've listened to 20 or 30 or 50 shows, you just send us a one-time donation if you like, which is what Craig did. Good on you, Craig, and, and enough to put you immediately into the Hall of Fame joining Sean and Alex. So thank you for that. And thank you also to the other patrons Ayami, Wayno, Jason, Grant, John T, Craig G, Janelle, Al, Ken R, John A, Robert, Roberta, sorry, and Ken A. Good on you for helping out. Much appreciated. Um, Scott, we've got 15 patrons. We Is average, that right? Well, dear listener, we average about 300 downloads a show. Um, really? Mm. Of the 15 patrons, six of them are personal friends of either Scott or I. <laughs> <laughs> so, so our patronage rate is about 2%, <laughs> which is probably about average. That's not but, bad, though. You know, that's, that's, um, that's pretty good. To those yeah, of you, I'm surprised that we get 300 downloads a week. Yeah, that's really nice. To those of you who are supporting us, uh, here is a message from those of you who aren't. Yes, it'd be nice to be on the receiving end of that and you can hop on the website and uh, show us some support. That would be nice. Now, some of you can't afford that because you're students. Um, You know, you'd love a cup of coffee during the week but you just can't afford it and you're stuck with Nescafe Instant and some hot water. (laughs) So uh, for those of you who can't, um, go on the website well, you've got to say you've got to show some support in some manner. If you've been listening to at least twenty episodes of this show, then I'm saying to you here and now that uh, time to give back in some manner. And you've here are your choices. Okay, you can, you can yep uh, go on the website and you'll see where you can leave us a voice message. It's easy to do. Just leave us a message. Great, love some of that. 
You can leave a review on iTunes, or if that is too difficult, there's another spot on the website where you can just leave a review, um, write a review, and it'll appear as part of a, sort of a rolling banner that appears on the website, so that's good. You can pick some names out of the Secular Index and do some research for us. You could send us an email just saying, Hi, guys, love your work. I'm hating the Nescafe and <laughs> uh, keep it up. Um, or you can just, you know, dear listener, if you see an interesting article during the week and you think, gee, that's one for the boys at the Iron Fist Velvet Glove, you can send it to us. So that would be good. If you've listened to 20 or 30 episodes and you're enjoying them, then a little bit of feedback would be good like that. Right, enough of that. Uh, okay, Hugh Harris wrote an article um, and it was titled Champions of Religious Freedom Should Be Careful What They Pray For. And he made some good points in there, Hugh. Religious freedom has become a proxy for religious privilege. Religious freedom is being framed as protection. Um, what this would mean in practice is the faithful gain a special pass to exempt themselves from the law of the land. But, paraphrasing George Orwell, why are some beliefs more equal than others? We generally don't exempt individuals from the law on account of their beliefs. Government employees who disagree with immigration policy cannot refuse to implement policy. Business owners cannot ignore laws which impinge on their conscience. Controversially, only religious organisations get the privilege of exemptions from anti-discrimination legislation. There is no belief hierarchy where certain beliefs carry more weight than others. Beliefs are protected until they impinge on others. Religious liberty should not become a Trojan horse for perpetuating certain views. That's what this debate is moving on to, Scott, with the marriage equality, is a Trojan horse of implementing religious privileges under the guise of religious freedom. Absolutely it is. It's, it's, uh, it's really ridiculous that the right wing of the Liberal Party has now, they've given up on the debate for marriage equality. Uh, so now they're drafting their own bill, uh, which they're going to present as a, uh, as a way of getting marriage equality through, which will give people the right to ignore people that are in a same-sex relationship if it offends their Christian or religious beliefs, you know. Yep. All it be is couched. wrong, it is wrong, it is wrong. It is dead wrong. Yeah. It's all going to be couched as religious freedom. That's going to be the phrase. All it is, is it's just freedom to discriminate. That's all it is. Mm. Can somebody out there do a search? Like, you can do this in Google, I think. Like, uh, how often words are used. And, you know, you'll find that the, f that the two words together, religious freedom, would, will, in the last six to 12 months, have been used, you know, a hundred times more than they were, you know, this time 10 years ago. It's just... Oh, absolutely, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, it's just a phrase they're trotting out. Right, Scott, um, we've already crossed Dubai off the list, haven't we? We have, yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> let's just cross it off again, just to be sure. <laughs> This is ridiculous, wasn't it? A Briton is, appears in, in a Dubai court for touching a man's hip in a bar. Mm. A Scottish man facing three years jail sentence in Dubai for putting his hand on a man in a bar so he did not bump and spill drinks as, as appeared in court. 
you know, that is absolutely crazy. Was it a homosexuality thing that he's up for or not? Oh, it's not exactly clear. It doesn't mention that. Yeah. Um, uh, but poor. presumably it wasn't because he was drinks or anything like that because, you know, the, the bar was, you know, up and running in Dubai. Yeah, yeah. But it's absolutely crazy that you've got a guy that was just walking through a bar, a crowded bar, and he just put his hand out to stop himself spilling drinks and he ends up in ends up on the wrong side of the court. Mm. Mm. Absolutely ridiculous. I think mm. Qantas is no longer going through. Um, <clears throat> they uh, haven't stopped yet, but they are stopping. Yeah, yeah. Yep. They're going to fly via Singapore. Right, yep. So you will go to Singapore and then you'll – well, the A380s will go into Singapore or they'll go 330s from Brisbane and then you'll jump on an A3, A380 to go to London. Yeah. Right. That sounds like a much safer option. Well, you can either that or go through Hong Kong on um, Cathay Pacific. Mm, yeah. Yep, yep. Mm. That's what I'll be doing. Um, Scott, uh, America hates socialism without knowing why. Um, in America, socialism is perceived as a stigma. Um, but why is that the case? And this article says a major yet hidden answer lies in social trust. And there's a chart where they've measured the level of social trust in various countries. And it's extremely high in countries like Denmark, Sweden, Norway, the Netherlands, and Switzerland, UK, Australia, Spain. Uh, And it's very low in places like Chile and Mexico and Turkey. Anyway, Mm. the graph also shows tax revenue. And where there is social trust... Uh, generally speaking, there's higher tax revenue as well. Um, In low-trust countries, everyone has to pay more for transactions. They're constantly guessing each other's intentions, looking out for cheaters. People are unwilling to invest in business and participate in financial markets, especially for the long term. As a result, firms tend to be small family businesses. Um, so when people don't trust governments and their fellow citizens, who would be wanting to contribute to financial, you know, commons, meaning the taxes? So for societies to function, Scott, where people are happy to pay their taxes, it's got to be an environment of trust where you figure that the money is going to be used properly and isn't going to be wasted and squandered on fat cats and corrupt officials. And, Mm. um... And, yeah, there's a relatively low social trust in the US, Australia reasonably high, and just making the point that soft corruption is something that we have to keep an eye on to maintain social trust. Um, Just back on religious freedom... um, I got diverted down a rabbit hole somewhere with that Freedom for Faith organisation. Came across a guy, Alex Deegan, lecturer in the Faculty of Law at QUT, talking about um, child sexual abuse and how in the Royal Commission a possible recommendation will be that the seal of the confessional should be done away with and... This guy is very pro-religion and he's saying, well, you can't do that 
But on the other hand, you can't, you know, allow the current status to continue. And he suggests that um, make uh, the sort of the sacrament of, of, of wiping away your sins to be contingent on um, giving yourself up to the authorities. So if somebody goes in to see a priest and says, yep, I've been doing these terrible things to these children, then the priest says, well, I'm not going to absolve you of your sins unless you hand yourself in. That's his solution. He said that that would be a good recommendation. And it's not going to work because the guy that goes in there to confess is just trying to get it off his chest mm. so that he can be not absolved by his sin or anything like that, so he can just get it off his chest so he can keep going on sinning, you know. Mm. It's it's like that um, case, and I think it was in Victoria somewhere, was it, when the... Ballarat. The priest... Oh, yeah. Ballarat, yes. The priest said he said he realised that he'd been done over because the bloke that he was going to report came in and confessed to him, you know. That's right. So it doesn't deal with the eventuality where the guy thinks that, uh, you know, well, priest A is the kitty fiddler and suspects that priest B has worked out what he's up to. So priest A goes to priest B to confess, knowing that priest B can never then uh, appear in court and give witness against him. So it doesn't fix that situation. And it also doesn't fix a situation that this pedophile can just keep on carrying on doing what he's doing. So if the priest says, uh, well, actually, no, I'm not going to give myself up. I think I'm just going to, you know, I'm not going to do that. Well, then he could well discontinue on his merry way being a pedophile and nothing happens. So there's no solution exactly. there, Alex. Yeah. That's, uh, you know... A lecture in Faculty of Law, that's just not cutting the mustard, Alex. No, it's not, is it? It's absolutely crazy that a, that a bloke who's got such a high position could say something that ridiculous. Mm. Mm. Just blinded by religious belief. He's got a mm. connection with that Notre Dame University people. Oh, does he? Mm. Yeah. Um, many countries favour specific religions, officially or unofficially. There's a list of them. You can go to the link, dear listener. But uh, 43 countries have an official state religion. 40 have a preferred one. 106 have no official or preferred religion. And 10 10 countries are hostile to religious institutions. They're the ones we'll concentrate on, Scott. (laughs) Dear listener. Maybe China, would it? (laughs) Very good. Have you got it in front of you? Uh, no, I'm just looking for it right now. I've got, I've got the article in front of me. I'm just trying to find where it is saying yeah. that they're hostile. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, dear listener, it's um, you know it's got the map there, Scott. The very first map. Got it. The second yep. paragraph underneath. Uh, yes, dear listener, while you're while we're finding our relevant sections, can you name ten countries that would be hostile to religion? So Scott's nominated China. And uh, the other ones on the list here are Cuba, North Korea, Vietnam, and several former Soviet republics. Hostile to religion. And it goes on and on about the other countries. Um, The ones with an official religion are usually Islamic. Islamic, yeah. No surprises for guessing that. Mm. Um, 
Um, there's just a couple of things that I thought we should mention. There mm. was a bloke that sent us an email during the week whose name escapes me, and he was talking about Abbott versus climate change. Mm. He attached a Politico uh, article that was talking about the nutrient collapse when yes. the atmosphere is literally changing the food we eat for the worse, and almost nobody is paying attention. What that was saying was that you alluded to the fact that um, the increase in carbon dioxide in the world leads to a greening of the crops and that sort of thing. Mm. And the crops are growing faster and that sort of stuff. What they're finding, though, is that it's producing more sugars in the crops. So while humans can go and get their sugars and that sort of stuff and move on and exercise and that type of thing, that's fine. But for everybody else on the planet, they can't. They rely on their... They rely on the grass and that sort of stuff to get their right amount of nutrients and that sort of stuff. But because the carbon dioxide level has gone up, the grass is going to have more sugar in it and that sort of stuff. And less nutrients, and less of the less minerals yeah. and other nutrients. Yes. Exactly. So yeah. they're growing so quickly, was... but growing uh, with less goodness in them. Yes. Mm. Yeah, that was interesting. Exactly. Mm. Mm. And then we also got a message on Facebook. I'm sorry, again, the guy's name escapes me. It was a tweet that was coming from a supporter of marriage equality. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, I am mentioning marriage equality. I do apologise, dear listener. Yeah, yeah. But it was um, it was about he's this guy's mum who, after 22 years in the church and that sort of stuff, had been kicked out for wearing a marriage equality badge yes. up to yes. get the communion, yeah. which stinks. Anyway, yeah. Been going to church, yeah, for over 20 years and mm. had a, yeah, yeah. Something indicating marriage equality, equality badge on it, and, and she got kicked out. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, right, <laughs> Scott, we've got an excursion early next week, so that'll be yes, interesting, we dear listener. We'll hopefully report back on on our little excursion to an evangelical gathering and <laughs> see what they have to say. <laughs> um, Monday be good. next week. Yeah. Public for Center for Public Christianity or something like that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, that will be something uh, at the top of the show for next week. So until then, we will we'll, we'll be back next week. We'll, yeah. Yes. Thank you very much for listening. Bye, everyone. Cheers. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee, 
Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just It'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.